Folks, we've been in John's gospel. We'll finish tonight. Uh, oh, look at this. I've never seen such enthusiasm for anything here. <laughs> uh, we've been in this text since 2016, three and a half years. This is the 122nd message in John's gospel. We're stopping there because I can't stretch it any longer. I've done my best because it's, you know, job security. So it's over. I gave you a little fun quiz last time. I said the next book we'll go through also starts with the letter J, also consists of 21 chapters. Some of you got what it is. Do you know what book it is? It's Judges, Lord willing, next week. And by the way, as far as I know, there'll be no competing athletic events to interfere with the worship of the Lord Jesus on Wednesday nights. But anyway, we'll start with Judges. It's an entirely different book, as you will see. If you care to read ahead, that's permissible. Judges is what we'll be doing next week. In the first part of chapter 21 of John's Gospel, the last chapter, we covered it last week, we saw that the Lord's disciples spent all night fishing. Most of them were professional fishermen. As a result, it was quite embarrassing for them after a full night of fishing to come up with empty nets. But the Lord, as he did one prior time, performed another miracle on the Sea of Galilee such that their nets came to be filled with fish. It was quite remarkable. In fact, the number of fish in the net was 153. Then they rowed their boat to shore. It was the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And to their surprise, I think they then recognized the risen Savior. They knew he had been beaten, crucified, and buried. They didn't really have a, quite a hopeful expectation they'd see him again. But there he was on the shore. And there was a fire, a charcoal fire. He had prepared it. On it was fish and bread. It was time for breakfast with Jesus. Can you imagine it? Breakfast with Jesus. This is the first thing that happened. The Lord took the initiative in feeding them. As a result, they were quite nourished in their private time with him. Now having been fed, the Lord is going to commission them to go out and feed others. But please take note of the order with which this took place. He didn't send them out to serve first. No, he called them simply to be with him and to receive the breakfast which he prepared. It occurred to me as I looked at this, this is really the essence of the Christian life. You know, the Lord Jesus, surely he called us to be together as a believing community, but really he called us to know him personally. It's the personal relationship, it seems to me, which has supremacy even over the corporate relationship we have with Jesus. I remember one time, Mark's gospel records it, after a night in prayer, uh, the Lord chose those who would be his intimate, special followers. And it says the Lord appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And I remember reading for the first time those two words, with him, that came first, in order that he might send them out to serve, that came second. And I began to pray in those days long time ago that I would emphasize the with him principle long before wanting to bear fruit for the Lord Jesus and serving and preaching and doing whatever it is. The essence of the 
Christian life, the power source was to have breakfast with Jesus, was to receive from him empowerment, was to enjoy fellowship with him as he enjoys it with us. Over the years, I'm ashamed to tell you, I've gotten distracted from the private with him experience to which he has called us. And isn't this ironic that for me, one of the biggest distractions is the very ministry that the Lord had called me to many years ago. It can become quite distracting and you could lose sight of your first love. You can go even a minister for long periods of time without having really supped with Jesus. And when I read this, I was convicted and reminded again that the premier privilege we have is to have breakfast with Jesus. Start the day with him, would you folks? I'm trying to get back with the program. The ministry is a great privilege, but that's not the essence of the Christian life. Christ is the essence of the Christian life. Now, what if you don't start your day with breakfast with Jesus? That's okay. What about brunch, lunch? What about a midday snack? What about supper? What about a in-the-middle-of-the-morning snack with Jesus? Whenever it is, you, I, want to discipline ourselves to make sure the stuff of life is not taking us away from the essence of life, and that's time with the giver of life and new life, uh, the Lord Jesus. If you're having trouble spending time with him, what do you do? Would you call me? I'd like to maybe help you get rolling. What does it mean to sup with Jesus? What does it mean to be nourished by him privately? What do you do? Where do you open the scriptures to? What do you say to him? I have a little bit of a method that I've shared in times past here, and I'd surely be glad to meet with you privately and personally and help you to get rolling in having a meaningful daily breakfast with Jesus. That's the power source from which you can go out and bear fruit for him in the rest of the day. So having fed them first, now he says, now go feed others. And interestingly, he targets that commission on, of all people, Peter. Uh, the reason why I find that to be surprising is you will recall Peter is the one who denied his very Lord three times. And yet we see the Lord, they're there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, uh, the uh, seven at this time, disciples are with him. He's making his remarks within their earshot, but he's focused on Peter, and here's what happens. Now we're in verse 15 of John 21. John 21, verse 15. So... When they, they, the disciples, had finished breakfast, Jesus said, notice, to Simon Peter, here's what he said, Simon, son of John. I must tell you, nothing could have gotten Peter's attention more than this. It's when, as you were a kid, your parent knew you did something wrong and called you by your first and last name. You know, uh-oh, this is serious business. Not only that, the last time the Lord referred to Peter, as Simon, son of John, was at the beginning of their relationship three years prior to this. You can check me out on this. I think you'll find what I just told you to be accurate. The first time and the last time the Lord referred to Peter this way was at the beginning of their time together. Uh, it was a time of sweet fellowship. Peter had discovered the uniqueness of this rabbi Jesus. 
He dropped all things, including his vocation, in order to follow him. It was a special time. Can you remember when you became redeemed and in the family of God? First love, joy, excitement, enthusiasm. All of that, I think, flooded back into Peter's mind because over the last three years, much had transpired in Peter's life, some good things, some not such good things. As I admitted to you, I think the same was true of Peter. He got distracted, didn't he? His eyes came to be off of the Lord and onto other things. And on one occasion in his undue self-assuredness and arrogance, He made promises of faithfulness and loyalty to the Lord Jesus, which soon he violated. Peter denied. He even knew this special Lord Jesus. And when the Lord Jesus referred to him uh, in the same way in which he referred to him at the beginning, I'll bet Peter and the others began to imagine, could he be reinstated? Could his sweet fellowship, the likes of which, He had at the beginning of things, could that possibly be restored? Well, Peter, you recall, was in the courtyard of the high priest some time ago in Jerusalem, about 70 miles south of this locale. The Lord had been taken captive. Uh, He was assaulted and assailed and put up on trials, trumped up charges and abuse of every principle of Jewish jurisprudence, and there in the courtyard of the high priest, there was Peter. He was curious, I suppose. There were others there as well. It was cool, cold even. And it could get that way. In Jerusalem, it's elevated. There was a fire set by which people in the courtyard could warm themselves at that fire. That's where Peter denied He even knew the Lord three times. Now he finds himself sitting by another charcoal fire along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And I wonder if this fire is kindling in his own mind a recollection, a painful reminder of that fire by which he stood in the courtyard of the high priest, during which time he denied the very Lord who is providing him with breakfast here by this fire. Peter, and I'm sure the others as well, were filled with wonder about whether, as they gathered around this fire, whether Peter, who was surely a leader amongst the 12, could he ever be, in light of what he's done, restored and reinstated to the Lord's service? And the Lord, during this very special breakfast, said directly to Peter, he said, do you love me more than these? What an odd question. Not so odd, Because Peter, one time again, rather arrogantly, thinking more of himself than he should have, previously claimed a loyalty and love for the Lord that indeed would exceed that of the other disciples. And so the Lord says, do you love me more than these, Peter? And why is this very question so important? I'll tell you why. The Lord could have disciples who, like Peter, have lapses of faith. The Lord can have, he does have disciples with flaws and imperfections, but the Lord cannot have disciples who do not love him. That's important. He can have disciples who have sinned. He can have disciples who have 
flaws and who has made mistakes. The Lord can even have disciples who are not doctrinally sound in all areas, but the Lord cannot have one who would pretend to be his disciple who does not love him. And so he asks of Peter this very critical question, do you love me? And of course, you know, he asks the same rather haunting question to each of us today. Whatever else may be true of us, slips and slides and distractions and whatever it is, still he says, do you love me? How would you answer that particular question? Here's Peter's answer. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well, now you may be aware of the fact that in this text, there are different words for our English word loved in Greek. And so when the Lord said to Peter, do you love me? You know about this. He used this word agapao or agape. Peter's response is, yes, Lord, I love you. Therein he used a different word for love. It's the word phileo. Now people make something of this. The Lord asked for a certain quality of love. Peter affirmed, yes, I love you, but it was a lesser quality of love. Could I tell you I wouldn't make too much of that? Because as I study John's gospel, I find that the writer uses those different words for love rather interchangeably. Now, that's an in-house argument. If you see it differently, we can argue about that. Uh, It's a subsidiary point I bring to your attention. But here is the main point we must not miss. It's this. Peter answers the Lord's piercing question in the affirmative. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It's as if Peter was saying, I am flawed, deficient, I'm even prone to wander, but yes, Lord, I do love you. And folks, to love Christ is perhaps the surest and most certain evidence that one is in fact an authentic follower of Christ. One may be imperfect and deficient in faith, One may be off even in some areas of doctrine, yet if one loves the Lord, that one is undoubtedly a Christian. And so Peter answers, yes, Lord, I do love you. And the Lord said to him, tend my lambs. There was a verbalization of love. Talk could be cheap. And so the Lord said, words need to be turned into action. Here's the action. If you love me, take care of my sheep. These are those whom I've saved. I've redeemed. They belong to me. Do you love me? Take care of them. Well, I wonder if you and I can imagine what this was like for Peter, who I think rightly anticipated criticism, and instead he got a command. He got a command which, which would have delighted him because the man would have meant for Peter reinstatement and restoration. He expected rebuke. He did not get that. And in essence, the Lord, I think, was communicating to Peter, Peter, I know you love me. Imperfections notwithstanding. Therefore, I want you to get back to business. Get back to the business of showing your love for me by tending my lamb. Now, Peter was not restored to salvation. Do you know why? 
because he never forfeited it. He was restored to fellowship and to service. And here the Lord places his most beloved possessions into Peter's care. Do you love me, Peter? Well then, tend my lambs. Now folks, in the prior part of chapter 21, which we reflected on last week, we looked at a text which I think gives us an emphasis on evangelism. It was about fishing for men and for women. But now, in the second part of this closing chapter in John's Gospel, I think the emphasis is not so much on evangelism, I think it's on discipleship. Tend my lambs. They've been redeemed, they're now my lambs. Tend to them if you love me, take care of them. Folks, you know this, don't you? Once a person has been led to Christ, that person must then be spiritually cared for. If evangelism, if you can imagine this, is all that a church does, that church may end up with a whole bunch of very immature, cranky, baby-like Christians. In fact, someone said some churches love to count the sheep but not feed the sheep. A church like Sedmont Church must ensure that what has been true in its past is most assuredly going to be true in its, I hope, hopeful future. And that is, we emphasize both evangelism and discipleship. I hope that remains part of our DNA. I thank God for the person who led me to Christ. Almost every day, I thank God for him. It was in a military barracks. He risked our friendship. He told me about the Jesus I did not know but needed to know. It went on September 5th, 1973. I responded to the very good news message he had shared with me by asking Christ to come into my life, forgive me, redeem me, change me from the inside out. I made that decision with great enthusiasm. I shared this with the person who first told me about Jesus. And he did not take me someplace and leave me on someone's doorstep. What mother who is sane, who birthed a child, would do that to an infant? Oh no, he stayed with me. After the evangelistic process, you see, he moved into the discipleship process. And you know what he did? He taught me how to have morning breakfast with Jesus. I'll pass it on to you if you want to. He taught me how to have a quiet time. He taught me biblical principles of things like financial management. He taught me how to relate to the opposite sex. He taught me how to study the Bible. He taught me how to share my faith, all the rest. He stayed with me all through the most critical time of spiritual infancy in my life. When I went to my first church to which he brought me, I assume that's the experience of every believer. And I was very surprised to find out that's not the case and that our churches are filled with lots of well-intentioned Christian. Indeed, they've been fully redeemed by the blood of the lamb. They're his lambs and sheep but they haven't gotten the kind of nurture that they need so as to preserve the fruits of evangelism and make that person a multiplying Christian, not just a convert, but a disciple. I hope that is and will be even more in the days ahead, part of the DNA of this church. 
Do you notice when the Lord said to Peter, tend my lambs, he said, tend my lambs, not your lambs. No, no, no. Those one to Christ are not ours. They don't belong to anybody but the one who redeemed those, the Lord Jesus. We are entrusted with the stewardship, if you think about it, of other believers whom the Lord has redeemed. You know what the Lord actually said to Peter? Now, in the English translation here, it looks like he said, tend my lambs, but it's actually stronger in the original language. You know what he really said? Peter, keep tending my lambs. It's not to be a something you do and be done with, That's your commission. This is what you do. No matter what, keep tending my lambs. Could I admit to you in church work as there are ups and downs and sometimes challenging times, a guy like me and others get distracted from our calling and the calling is, no matter what else is true, be about tending my lambs. We don't get permission to stop doing it no matter what else is transpiring around us. If you love me, says the Lord, this is how you show it. No matter what, keep tending my lambs. And so here's what happened in verse 16. Uh, The Lord said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he said to him, here we go again, shepherd my Sheep. That's a cute one, isn't it? Shepherd my sheep. In other words, the love Peter stated that he has for the Lord Jesus was to manifest itself in the care of the Lord's sheep. And in verse 17, he said to him, look at this, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. What was the Lord up to in asking Peter the same question three times? I don't think he's trying to pain him nor embarrass him in any way. In fact, I think the Lord's goal was to reinstate him publicly. You see, three times Peter had publicly denied the Lord. And now the Lord gives him an opportunity three times to publicly confess his love for the Lord. All this is to persuade Peter and the rest who are listening to this conversation that Peter had been forgiven and restored and called. And the calling of God is irrevocable even for Peter So truly, truly, verse 18, I say to you, the Lord continues speaking to Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, used to walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands, someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. What in the world is going on there? Would you allow me to tell you this is an interesting reference to the kind of death Peter will die. How do I know this? Well, the very next verse tells us that. We'll get there in a second. Peter, the Lord says, you enjoyed a large measure of freedom of movement as a young person. However, soon, at this point in your life, things are going to be different for you. 
Can you see the phrase, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands? Do you know that is a reference to crucifixion? The victim's hands were literally stretched out on the patibulum, the horizontal crossbar, on the way to the site of crucifixion. That one's hands were stretched out, and that one was taken to a place. All this was imposed upon the victim. This one had no liberty nor freedom. This was not something volitional. This was something compelled and forced upon the victim. And, and the Lord, who knows Peter's future and yours and mine, says, Peter, I will not deceive you with flowery, fluffy words. This is how your life is going to come to an end. Jesus spoke of Peter's future. When another would bind him and carry him to a place he would not choose to go, a place where his hands would be stretched out, in other words, crucified on a cross. And indeed, Eusebius, first century historian, tells us that Peter was in fact crucified under the regime of Nero, the cruel Roman emperor. And Eusebius records that Peter insisted he be crucified, get this, upside down, he feeling not worthy to die in the same manner in which his Lord was put to death. You know what I get out of this? The Lord made no promises to Peter of ease, smooth sailing, prosperity. He made no such promise to Peter. He doesn't make such promises to us. Someone said the master's sheep should not be surprised if they partake of the master's suffering. And so the Lord did not entice Peter to follow him by promising him earthly comfort and prosperity as the prosperity preachers are prone to do today. In fact, he told Peter of suffering and he told Peter of death, death by crucifixion for the sole reason that Peter chose to identify with him. And so in verse 19, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. The Lord told Peter in advance the kind of death he would experience by which he would glorify God. Isn't that interesting? We know we are to glorify the Savior in our living, but do you see we're also to glorify the Savior in the manner in which we die? Well, how can you do that? Well, you can be ready for it because it could come at any moment. Yeah, you could be ready for it. Settle things you need to hear. Reconcile with those you're at odds with. Make sure your investment in this earth is not so great that a soon departure would be met with sorrow. You're an alien and stranger as I am, just a sojourner. You can glorify God by not being surprised, by not being surprised at what may be his soon calling for any one of us here to come home. Secondly, you can glorify the Lord in the process of dying by making sure others around you know of the hope you have in Jesus, even as you're going through the process. There was an elderly Christian man near death. His body was racked with pain and disease. A friend asked him, how are you? He said, almost well. You could tell people that. 
soon it'll be well. D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist, passed away in 1899. He once said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. My fellow Christians die right. Die right. Resist anger, cynicism, pessimism, bitterness. That could be a premier opportunity for you to glorify Almighty God. Charles Kingsley was a Baptist uh, pastor, excuse me, a British pastor. He died in 1875. He once said, it is not darkness you are going to, for God is light. It is not lonely, for Christ is with you. It is not an unknown country, for Christ is there. My fellow Christians, live right, but die right. Even the psalmist, you know about this, said this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? Yeah, for thou art with me, you see. And when he had spoken this, the text says, he, Jesus, said to him, to Peter, follow me. That's what he told them. This, again, in the Greek, is called a present imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. It's a command. And when it says present in the Greek, you can attach the I-N-G to it. Keep following me. To follow the Lord is not something you do once and get over with. No, this too is our lifestyle. It's as if the Lord said to Peter, Peter, you have failed, but keep following me. Peter, your faith has wavered, but keep following me. You have brought guilt and shame upon yourself in your sin, but keep following me. You have thought more highly of yourself than you ought, but keep following me. Others, Peter, may have thought it is over for you and me, but I say, keep following me. Peter, it will not be easy to follow me, but keep following me anyway. Reinstatement and restoration. And in verse 20, Peter, turning around, if you can imagine this, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know that's John, the very writer of this book. He saw John following them. In case you're not sure, for sure, who Peter is alluding to, he's the one who also had leaned back on his breast, on the Lord's breath at the Passover Seder, we call the Last Supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? It's that John. Peter is is cognizant of this one John following. And in verse 21, uh, we read, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about him? What about this man? Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> Peter had been informed about God's life and plan for him, and he wondered, well, what was God's plan for John? And in verse 22, the Lord in no uncertain terms says, if I want him to remain if I want John to remain alive until I come again, what is that to you? You follow me. You see, the Lord's plans for Christians differs, and he doesn't explain why. 
He doesn't say why he has a plan for one and not for the other. He gives us no explanations. He does not defend himself. He doesn't justify what he does. He just does it. And then he says, what is that to you? You follow me. And I find if we get this right, we won't be bitter about God's plan for someone else. We won't be distracted. We won't be robbed of sweet fellowship with the Lord Jesus. We won't look to the right or left and see what he's up to with other Christians. We'll look straight ahead, set our eyes like flint, and we'll follow the Lord Jesus. And all the while, the Lord is saying to him, what is that to you? Follow me. And in verse 23, this saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that that disciple, John, would not die. And yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? And so a rumor spread based on a misinterpretation of the Lord's words. People went about saying that the Lord said to John he would not die before he, the Lord, who's going to ascend into heaven, before he returns, John will remain alive. People were saying, yes, yes, yes. Well, folks, that's not what the Lord said. And this faulty perception of what the Lord said was due, if you notice, was due to people missing one little old word of what he said, and it's the word if. The Lord never promised that John would not die until he returned. The Lord said, if I choose for that to be my plan for him, what is that to you? And so mishandling of God's word led to false conclusions about what Jesus said, which leads me to think, boy, our minds really to be set on handling scripture rightly. I remember what Paul said to his beloved Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. In this season of transition at Sagemont Church, I hope you're praying for our pastor, Brother John, for the next phase of his ministry. While you're doing that, I hope you're praying for the one who will be Brother John's replacement. When, how, nobody knows but God himself. We ought to be about the business of enthusiastically praying for that one who is already selected by God, only he doesn't know it and we don't know him. Why is that? Because he needs time to be being prepared for us and we need time to be being prepared for him. That's why. And God must see value in the process, which frankly a guy like me finds to be not enjoyable at all. Well, there must be value in it. Be praying that whomever the Lord brings here is someone who will feed us on knowledge and understanding. A student of the word of God who spends time pouring over scripture in his private study, the results of which we benefit from. Pray for that person, that kind of person. You know what someone said? Confused saints cause more problems than lost sinners. I find that to be true. People who are mishandling the word of God cause more trouble. Well, we don't want to be that way. We want the next shepherd to be handling accurately the word of truth. Now, verse 24, we're, 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 gonna, we're, we're almost finished. 
This is the disciple, John, right? This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. Do you know it's very possible that some other folks wrote this to endorse the veracity, the reliability of John's gospel message. And then the last verse in this great book, John says, John records this, verse 25, there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. Folks, whatever you and I know of Christ is only a fragment of what can be known of Christ. In fact, the world could not contain all the books that could be written about him. This Jesus, whom John has painstakingly written about in 21 chapters, this Jesus in whom we have placed our hope, this Jesus is uncontainable. There is much more, folks, about Jesus than we can know now, and perhaps this is why we need eternity, to know him fully and completely. I believe he is waiting, willing, to tell us the rest of the story when we get there. Will you be there? Will you be there? That's an important question. How do you answer? Yes, no, not sure. Would you give us your time if you're troubled about your eternal situation? Will I be with Jesus to bask in the sunlight of his literal presence, to worship him as more and more of his perfections are manifested before me? Will I be there to experience the bliss of eternal life, which is to know thee? Will I? Will I not? Would you give us some of your time, even before we take leave of each other tonight, in that room in the back, the Connection Center, there'll be people there to meet with you, talk with you, help you to sort this out. This is an important question. John, in 21 chapters of this book, has taken pains to cause us to turn our eyes upon Jesus for salvation and for hope and for forgiveness and for restoration and for peace and for fellowship and for eternal life. I sincerely hope that God's words recorded for us so wonderfully by John have not been written in vain. May each of us turn our eyes upon Jesus like never before for the time could be shorter than we think. May we each, because of what John has shared with us, turn our eyes upon Jesus as Savior and Lord with more passion and tenacity and constancy than ever before. I was a new Christian. I was in Europe. And uh, I heard for the first time a song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I told my wife, if I go before you, have someone, anyone, sing it at my funeral. It doesn't have to be good. Just sing it. Would you do it, Brother John? Okay, because I was thinking, after the rapture, you're going to really be in charge of things. (laughs) Hear the words to this little chorus. Would you stand? Let's sing this. Let's sing our way out of here. And may, may, may the words be, be, be our plan uh, as we take leave of one another. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Let's sing it as best we could. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. This will happen. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. How? In the light of his glory. God bless you folks. See you next time.